Uh, I pray, Lord, as we uh, dive into your word, uh, as we look at your gospel, uh, Lord, we know that transformed lives come out of that. So uh, I'm praying that today, Lord. We want to see transformed lives in the name of Jesus. Uh, We pray in his name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. I feel like I should clear some things up. My name is not Frank Taylor. I am not the senior pastor here at Uniontown Bible Church, as you probably pieced together from that little video. I'm the youth pastor. My name is Patrick. If you're visiting with us this morning, I just wanted you to know that, okay? Uh, If you are visiting, we're glad that you're here. You're welcome among us. Uh, Would love uh, to meet you at some point. Well, we're working through Colossians, and if you would allow me to be frank with you for a moment, I know, that one was funny, that one was funny, because I'm not frank, but if you would allow me, uh, this, this sermon this morning is, it's heavy, okay, it's heavy, so I wanted to front load some humor, and now it's done, okay, no more laughing. Last week, uh, well, I'll tell you, we're in chapter 3 of Colossians. We'll be in verse 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start heading there. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, uh, there are some in the lobby. Last week, Frank walked us through Paul's household code here in chapter 3. Paul addresses wives and husbands, children and fathers or parents. And I believe I saw a post on Facebook that Frank had sent out. If you have any questions that came out of last week's sermon, um, and you were just like dying to ask them, send them to Frank. Um, I know he had said last week, send them to Mark Andrews. Don't do that. Send them to Frank. Uh, He's going to preach on June 24th on some of those lingering questions that came out of that text. Hopefully there's no lingering questions after my sermon. Um, But anyway, Today we're in the same paragraph, the same household codes, it's the same idea. In some ways, Frank kind of left us hanging last week. Uh, the literary genius of Paul, he's doing something in this, uh, these texts here, okay? So he addresses these three groups he, uh, 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 that were part of the, the household in the Greco-Roman culture, okay? So first he addresses wives, children, and slaves, and he mentions them first in their groupings. Uh, and these three were considered to be the subordinate in the household, according to the culture. And Paul encourages them to recognize that they are serving the Lord Jesus. And then he addresses husbands, fathers, and masters, considered to be the heads of the household, again, according to the culture, and are to submit to Jesus as Lord overall. So that's kind of where we are, and this is how this fits in. My argument for you guys this morning I'm just going to give it to you on the upfront side, uh, coming from chapter 3 right in the beginning. So if we are risen in Christ, this is Paul's argument, our lives should look a little bit different. So if we are risen in Christ, then it changes how we relate to our world and in the workplace. If we are risen in Christ, it changes how we relate to the world and in our workplace. So here's our text, verse 22 of chapter 3. He says, Slaves. Obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. 
you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So right on the upfront side, we get this word, um, slaves. And that word can kind of make people feel a little uneasy. Uh, There's a couple things we need to deal with. The word in the Greek is doulos. So there's some differing translations coming out of that in our English text. Some choose to translate it as servants. Some use bond servants and some use slaves. What are the differences? Well, a servant carries the implication that this is a free man or woman serving a somebody. And then bond servants are those who have sold themselves into slavery. And slave is a broader term uh, that I think encompasses bond servant but it's basically an individual that is owned by someone else. Given the context into which Paul is writing, which we'll talk about here in a second, uh, I think that it's the latter of the two. So bond servants or slaves, I prefer um, slaves because of the context. Here's the surface level problem. Okay, see if we can clearly communicate this. We claim that God is just. Amen? And the source we cite is the Bible, Scripture. We claim that humanity is fractured, fallen, and helpless. Amen. And the source we cite is both the Bible and the look-around-you argument. Like, look at your neighbor. Fallen, helpless. Okay? But seriously, we see it in the news. We just, just, it's around us. The world's broken. Uh, Slavery is an issue Because if God is just and his justice is revealed to us in Scripture, then here's my question. Why is Scripture so unjust when it comes to slavery? Why does biblical legislation, particularly Exodus chapter 21, contain inequality in the value placed on a slave's life and the value placed on a free man's life? That's a tough question. You thought about that lately? Like, why doesn't God just eradicate slavery in his law? Why doesn't Moses just trot down the mountain in Exodus 20 and say, hey, guys, here's the big 10, boom, and by the way, slavery's done, forget about it. Like, why doesn't he just end it there? Let me try and answer my own question uh, that I've been trying to do all week. See, we must read the Bible in its context. Context is so very important. It was so important that I had a seminary professor climb up on a table. It was not easy for him to do. And he stomped on the ground. Context, context, context. It's important when we read uh, Scripture. And so as we read Exodus 21, we have to remember that this is addressing a multitude of slaves. Slaves. Uh, The newly freed slaves. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So it's quite literally the only thing that these people knew with the exception of Moses. What's incredibly interesting is when we compare Exodus chapter 21 to Deuteronomy 15. So Deuteronomy 15, let's just go there. Exodus 21, anybody? Come on. There it is. Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. 
okay? And then there's several verses outlined later. Most of them have to do with how to control your slave, what you can and can't do, and all those things, all right? And then we get Deuteronomy 15, which is same people, same Hebrews, right? But generations later, because they had wandered around in the desert, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So in verse 12 of chapter 15 in Deuteronomy, it says, if your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. And when you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. You are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. So I think we begin to see here, even in the first five books of the Bible, a trajectory of God eradicating slavery. Deuteronomy 15 is much more concerned with how you set a slave free with stuff for them to prosper and do well, right? I wish we had time to walk through the rest of the Old Testament and all the, the thing and, and see that trajectory. Um, most of you are looking at me like, we don't have time for that. We don't have time. We don't. You're right. The Old Testament is very long. Um, and as we get into the New Testament, there's more that's said about it. Uh, I said this for first service. I'll say it again. If you're interested in this topic, no joke. Let's go to Starbucks. You can buy me a cup of coffee. And we, I'm just kidding. You don't have to buy me a cup of coffee. Uh, but we can talk about this. There's much to talk about. As we get into the New Testament uh, world, we are deep into the Greco-Roman culture. So this is the context that Paul finds himself writing into, writing this letter. Uh, so let's consider some things about this culture. First of all, approximately a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. A third of the population. That's a huge number. Second, some slaves were prisoners of war. Many others were men and women who sold themselves into slavery to relieve a burdensome debt. Third, slaves had certain rights, rights under Roman law, and could normally be expected to be released after seven years or by age 30. Fourth, and I think most importantly, slavery in the Greco-Roman culture was not race-based. Now, as we get to Colossians, I think Paul is making an argument for the abolition of slavery, the end of slavery, but not institutionally and not universally all at once. Paul is saying, I think, that the advancement of the gospel will be the ultimate end of slavery, and we're going to walk through that. So what about slavery in Europe, the Caribbean, and here in the American South in the 16th and 19th century? I would be remiss if I did not bring this up. And I'll say this about it. It was biblically condemned and utterly unchristian. Biblically condemned and utterly unchristian. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 condemns the slave trader or the kidnapper or the man stealer, condemns him to death, not punishment. You steal a man, sell him into slavery, you die. Okay? Paul says further in 1 Timothy 1, so in the New Testament, he's got something to say about man-stealers, and it's not nice. There's a lot more that we can say about this, but I think we need to get to the text in Colossians. So Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He's telling the believing slaves there to obey your human master and everything. So verse 22, he's addressing the slaves. 
I don't think I said that. My first point, here we go, is Paul is addressing slaves, not slavery. Paul's addressing slaves, not slavery, okay? So he says, slaves, obey your human masters and everything. First off, we see an immediate similarity to his command to children. He says, children, obey your parents and everything. So we see there's a similarity there. I think there's one major difference. The children that were present most likely had believing parents that were also present. I don't think, or I think it would be safe to say that not all the slaves present in this meeting place hearing this letter would have had believing masters. So there's a difference there. I think that this complicates things, and this is what forces Paul to expound a bit, okay? So he continues in verse 22. He says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, verse 23, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. See, the Christian slave was to have integrity. But can we acknowledge for a second how difficult it might have been for someone in that room, a Christian slave in that room, to hear this? You're, you're in captivity. You're, you're oppressed. You're, you, you, maybe you're serving a wicked master. Paul doesn't address this. He's silent. On that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, though, it seems that Paul's encouragement to slaves is to honor their masters, even the wicked ones. Obey. That's, that's a hard thing to hear. Paul talked a little bit, or Frank talked a little bit about that last week. But I think it's important here um, to the, the word that we translate as people pleasers. Okay, I think Paul, uh, most scholars think that Paul coined this word uh, or made it up. Uh, People pleasers. The, the more literal translation would be I slaves. So concerned about how other people perceive you. We got any people pleasers in the room? Anybody? Nobody wants to raise their hand. My hand is up, not as an illustration. This is me. This is me. Yeah. People pleaser. So uh, my first job technically was umpiring baseball when I was like 12, 13, 14. When I could legally work, according to the state of New York, when I turned 15, I started working for a party rental company in the warehouse. And see, we figured out, because we were a bunch of smart 15, 16, 17-year-olds, that if we sat lazily in just the right place behind a certain stack of chairs, we could see the mirror that pointed to the front of the warehouse. And when you would start to see that door swing open, suddenly we were the busiest bees ever, sprung into action, right? Like we had always been working the whole time because we were more concerned about what our bosses thought about us than what the Lord Jesus thought about us. That was me when I was 15. Still is me today, if I'm honest, sometimes. But listen, Paul wants the Christian slave to recognize that they are not working under the lordship of their human master, but under the lordship of Christ. And he lays his reason out here in verse 24. He says, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. A what? We're removed from this context. We, we weren't in the, the Philemon's house. We'll find out later. 
the church at Colossae met at Philemon's house. Okay? So Paul was addressing this because there were slaves present in the church at Colossae. Okay? There were masters. We know of at least one historical relationship, and that was Philemon and Onesimus. All right? Can you imagine the smiles, maybe, the gasps, the, what did he say? But we're slaves. See, the Greco-Roman culture, slaves could not take an inheritance. They weren't worthy of wages. They didn't deserve anything but what they were in. This is stark. Okay? This is a big deal. Uh, So what's this inheritance that Paul's speaking of? I mean, it's fairly obvious that this inheritance is wages of some sort. I need to step back a little bit, okay? I am not talking about salvation. Okay? You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't come to church for it. Can't buy it. Salvation is a gift of grace through faith. Okay? But the Bible talks about this inheritance. Okay? For believers. There could probably be a sermon series on this. So here you go, Frank, if you're listening on Tuesday or whenever. Frank's on vacation, by the way, so he's probably not going to listen to my sermon this week. Um, but there could be a sermon series on this. So let me run through some of these. There's a lot of scripture references, so don't get bogged down. Don't try to flip through real quick. They're there. If you want a list of them, email me. I'll send them to you. You can study them on your own time. It's good stuff. But the Bible says this. It says, all believers will receive some inheritance simply because God chooses to give it. John chapter 3 says this. Romans 5 says this. Romans 8. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Peter 1. The Bible also says that those who remain faithful to the Lord will receive much more inheritance. Matthew 5. Mark 9. Luke 6. uh, Chapter 19 of Luke. John chapter 12. 15. 1 Corinthians 3. There's a lot more. I could go on for a while. Some passages uh, indicate that this inheritance involves participation in the wedding banquet at the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. We get that from Matthew 25. Other passages speak of it as reigning with Christ. That's Matthew 19 and Luke 19. Uh, Or how many of you have heard treasures in heaven? You're storing up treasures in heaven. Anybody? Anybody heard that? No? Crowns. Okay, so that's in there. Several different places. This is true for all believers. This is not just the first century Christian slaves. We all got something coming. The best part is eternal dwelling with Jesus, the Lord of all. Okay? So first in heaven, we sing that that song, I'm going home, right? And then at some point, Jesus is going to come back and claim his rightful throne because he is king. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will reign with him. And there's some sort of inheritance for believers. What should you hear from this? I think you should hear the same thing that the first century slaves are hearing. Persevere in the faith. Follow hard after Christ. 
How you live once you believe, after salvation, is eternally important. How you work is important. Last week, how you live in your home, how you parent, how you be a kid, it's important. Persevere in the faith. And then Paul delivers this punchline in verse 24, the end of verse 24. He says, you serve the Lord Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. So this is what I mean by Paul addressed the slave and not slavery. He says to the slave, he says, look, ultimately you serve the Lord Jesus. He will repay you for your work and toil, and he shows no favoritism. He will also repay the wrongdoer. Uh, Now, Paul does not specify what these consequences are, but at the minimum, I think probably a lack of a reward, and at most, some sort of punishment, but I don't want to go too far on that. He just doesn't specify. Here's the point. If you are risen in Christ, then look to the things above. See above the situation that you're living in and serve Jesus. Now Paul addresses the Christian slave owner. He says, Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So I mentioned this before, but it's obvious Paul mentioning this uh, means that at this church in Colossae there were some slave owners, one of which we already know, Philemon. Now, there's really two ways to interpret this verse, and it hinges on this word, excuse my pronunciation, it's ancient Greek, parekeste. The Christian Standard Bible that I've been using uh, translates this word as deal. Okay, so deal uh, with your slaves justly and fairly. Other translations choose the word treat. But... um, I think that probably a more accurate translation would be to grant to or provide. So I like the NIV translation here. If you have an NIV, it says provide to your slaves what is right and fair. Or if you're uh, a little bit older school, old school, you like the NASB, grant to your uh, your slaves justice and fairness. But Paul is not specific on what he means by what is right and what is fair. If we look elsewhere in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, verse 21, Paul says, Were you called while a slave? Did you become a Christian while you were a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Do so. Seek your freedom. In Colossians, earlier, chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, in Christ there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Furthermore, I think inherently important to this text is the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Now, when's the last time anybody spent their devotions in Philemon? Anyone? Ever? No? Great little letter. Great little letter. In fact, we're going to read it right now. So if you could, you can flip to Philemon. If you don't, uh, you can just listen, because I'm going to read it. 
So Onesimus would have been carrying, he would have been among the um, caravan of people coming to the church, and Onesimus would have been carrying this letter to Philemon, okay? It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. See, I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me since I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Great letter. A lot of stuff in here. We don't have the time to really go through it as much as I would want to, so I want to pick on two of the verses. Verse 9, he says, I appeal to you instead on the basis of, basis of love. Paul makes his chains very apparent to Philemon. In fact, he rattles them twice in the beginning of the letter. I'm a prisoner, okay? And he says that he could order, command Philemon on the account of his power as an apostle. But he says, instead, I appeal to you on the basis of love. So what the heck is Paul appealing for. I think it's clear that Paul's appealing for Philemon to free Onesimus. Look at verses 15 and 16. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? See, to believe the gospel of Jesus is to walk away from institutional, fleshly, human slavery. 
to walk away from it. And to a spiritual enslavement to righteousness and to Jesus. Did you hear during that song we were singing? Andy read from Romans 6. It's powerful. We are enslaved to righteousness, to Jesus, to the eternal master, the true master, the heavenly master, the one that knows how to do this right. And we are to work for him. I think it's worth noting here that Paul would not have ventured to end slavery as an institution. I mentioned this earlier. All at once in its entirety, uh, the, the Christians at this time were a small group of people. They weren't, they weren't a lot. There weren't a lot of them, okay? They wouldn't have taken on the Roman Empire. They couldn't. Where a third of the population were slaves, and it was the number one thing powering the economy of the empire. They couldn't take it on. So what's Paul's answer? Share the gospel. One at a time. I think the gospel is Paul's answer to slavery. It's the ultimate end of slavery. This is a great segue into our takeaway. Our takeaway this morning is that the gospel changes how we relate to our world and the workplace. So, right, we could say that the gospel changes everything, and I could get a big amen, and everyone could say yes, okay? But to get more specific, the gospel changes how we relate to our world and the workplace. So here's the difficulty in applying this passage. Paul's speaking to a very specific, two very specific groups of people uh, whom I'm pretty sure the categories of which do not apply to really anyone in this room. So what do we do with it? I'm sure that you've heard this text apply to the workplace. Um, if you are risen in Christ, then how you work and how you boss changes. And that's true. And I definitely think that there are some principles that we can walk away with um, here. But I think that that application is secondary, and so we'll talk about it in a minute. See, for us to do justice to this text would be to acknowledge that slavery is not dead. There are, there are slaves right now on this planet. There are people owned by people. There are people enslaved to people, to a person. Not something to a person. But we're, we're removed from it. We're in Carroll County, Maryland, in case you didn't know, up on a hill. We don't see it. We don't see it. Uh, modern slavery, probably more better known as human trafficking, is, it's, it's, it's big. Okay, I found this in an article published in January of last year. It says, human trafficking is a hidden crime making it hard to quantify. Anti-trafficking advocates are often faced with the challenge of how to most effectively convey the scope and the severity of the problem while putting victims' stories into context. The swift movement of traffic victims and the invisibility of these crimes makes it nearly impossible to determine exactly how many slaves there are in the world today. According to the International Labor Organization, there are an estimated 20.9 million victims of modern-day slavery worldwide who generate $150 billion in illegal profits every year. So slavery is still profitable. 
In my research, I found numbers that nearly doubled that 20.9 million. But it's hard to know. It's scary. But the gospel changes how we relate to our world. And so I think that we, as Christians, have a responsibility to fight on the side of the oppressed. But it's overwhelming to fight something so big. It's like, who do you punch in the face? Who do you go after? You shouldn't, shouldn't punch anyone in the face. Don't do that. But you just, you, you just want to take that institution down. But you can't. What do you do? You know, what would it look like to take Paul's approach? What would it look like to preach the gospel into that context? Here's two ways, not in order of importance. First, I think uh, it would look like supporting Christian organizations that rescue people out of slavery. Okay? They exist. There's several of them. Uh, one that I, I know of, uh, a, a dear friend of mine, his wife works for them, um, and they are doing incredible work in the Philippines. That organization is called My Refuge House. I encourage you to go to their website. Go to myrefugehouse.org. Don't do it now. Um, look, watch the videos. See the stories. See the, the, her name's Hope on one of the videos. Her name's Hope. She was enslaved in the Philippines. And now she's not. And she knows who Jesus is. And her name's not just Hope. She has hope. Go to the website. Watch the video. See, see the people. Secondly, I think it would look like sending missionaries into cities where human trafficking is at large and countries where slavery is prominent. As far as I know, uh, we currently as a church do not support anyone or have sent anyone from Uniontown into the context such as this. Uh, we've just recently sent someone into China, um, and a couple weeks ago we or the bookers announced that they're going into the field. Who's next? That's pretty cool to think about. Like, who among us is going out into the field, into this context, preaching the gospel to wicked people? Because we, we were once wicked, right? Let's be praying for that as a church. Secondly, the gospel changes how we relate to people at work, in the workplace. So I don't plan to spend a lot of time here. Um, just two questions, okay? Really simple. Are you serving or are you working like you're serving the Lord Jesus? Okay? That's a, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. I'll admit that. You think on that this week. And then secondly, if you're a manager, maybe you own your own uh, business, are you treating your employees justly and fairly? Also a good question. Hey, listen, we're going to do communion here in a little bit. And as I wrap up, I wanted to go back to Philemon and Onesimus for a second. From the context, we know that Onesimus ran away. We don't know why. But I'm willing to bet that it was on his own accord because Paul tells us that Philemon's an upstanding guy and he bears the two marks of a true Christian, faith and love. The context um, tells us that Onesimus owed something to Philemon. And Paul asks him to credit it to his account. And then further we see that Paul pleads to Philemon to accept Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. 
So let me preach for a second. You and I both owed something to the Father. Something that we couldn't pay. Ever. See, we owed him for our work. We owed him for our sin. And the only payment for that is death. As the Bible tells us. Jesus had something different to say about that. See, Jesus took that payment and he paid it. He died in our place. You see, not only did he take your account, but he gave you his. So your payment, I'll take it. My righteousness, here you go. That's the gospel. Now, Onesimus and Philemon, they were made brothers, equals in Christ, okay? So slave, slave owner, reconciled through Jesus. That relationship is forever changed, forever. So Onesimus and Philemon, when they went to church, that table, that communion table, they both went to it as equals in Christ, as brothers in Christ. As you go to the communion table, you take that cracker, you take that juice, I want you to think about the payment that you owed, the payment that Jesus made. Give him thanks. I'm going to pray, and then as the music is playing, um, you're going to leave your seat. You're going to come forward. You're going to grab the elements. And when everyone is seated, uh, we're going to take communion together. Uh, I was asked this in the first service, so I'll just say it. The cracker is gluten-free in case you're worried about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that uh, you loved us even when we were sinners, even when we were deserving of death. Um, you would send your son to live a, a perfect life, um, to live a life that didn't deserve death. Um, and we thank you that he, would, that he would die on the cross. Thank you that you would see his sacrifice as sufficient and raise him from the dead on the third day. And as we sang that song earlier, you know, I will rise. There's so much power in that. We will rise not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for the assurance we have. We love you. Pray all of this in your son's name and the power of your spirit. Amen.